Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Wagagani worked for NPR in Afghanistan, and so when the Taliban took Kabul, she was able to get out with the help of NPR and other news organizations. While for many Americans, the airlift might have been the end of the story, for Ghani, it was only the beginning. She gave up everything. My house. I had dogs. I left my cat. I, I miss everything about my home. Everything. She joins a panel today to walk us through what the last six months have been like as we take stock of the situation for Afghans resettling here in the U.S. and those now under Taliban rule in Afghanistan. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The American media's memory can be shockingly short. Just a few months ago, the crisis in Afghanistan, as the United States pulled its troops and the Taliban rapidly took over the country, was all over the news. Images of desperate people trying to get out of Kabul dominated coverage. Now, not so much. But this hour, we want to pull the focus back to Afghanistan and the people who have made it out, as well as those who haven't. We're joined first by Missy Ryan, national security reporter with The Washington Post. Welcome to the show, Missy. Thanks for having me. So since the U.S. pulled out, what position has the American government taken towards the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? Well, the U.S. government has not recognized the Taliban officially as Afghanistan's government yet. And because the Taliban, as a non-state group, was already subject to extensive sanctions when it was functioning as an insurgent organization, um, the government of Afghanistan, basically, which is the Taliban now, Mm -hmm. um, is also subject to extensive sanctions. And so that has led to um, basically a huge financial crisis um, for Afghanistan. The Afghan government prior to the Taliban takeover was heavily dependent on foreign aid. Donor money accounted for about 80% of the government budget every year. Um, And so that money uh, from the United States and from other Western donors has been suspended entirely. And cash cash flows are uh, severely limited into the country. And so basically the public sector, the financial sector are all paralyzed right now. And that has led to increasing prices in Afghanistan, to um, uh, Afghans' inability to access their savings. Um, Hundreds of thousands of government employees have not been paid. Um, And that is combining with a situation where you already had extensive poverty in Afghanistan um, and a severe drought, which really has led to um, 
a really very dire situation in terms of humanitarian conditions. You have aid workers warning that at least a third of the country is facing food insecurity. Um, so basically there's a situation now where the Biden administration is reviewing potential changes to its position, but aid workers, um, members of Congress and many former officials are warning that it's not moving fast enough, that the White House is not moving fast enough given the severity of the um, humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and the fact that it's winter there now and um, you could see something um, extremely severe here in terms of suffering on the part of the Afghan people. Mm. I mean, just ticking through those components of this of this crisis, you know, the loss of Western donors, the the lack of dollars to, to conduct the economy, like all governments pretty much around the world need some dollars to do things, paralyzed financial sector, runaway prices, no pay for government employees, and the pre-existing poverty that existed, exacerbated by severe drought. Like, which of those things can the U.S. government actually do things about? Well, the U.S. government um, has frozen about $10 billion in Afghan government reserves, which are held um, in, the, in New York. Um, and there, you know, the, the fact that Afghanistan and Afghanistan Central Bank, which is now under control of the Taliban, does not have access to that cash is obviously a huge factor. The administration is not considering, as I understand it, changing or unfreezing that, that you know, huge store of funds currently. But um, what they're trying to do is, in conjunction with you know, the United Nations, with the World Bank, look at ways to um, free up funding on the margins and get money into the Afghan economy without going through the Taliban, while basically the outside world um, waits and sees what kind of governance the Taliban is really going to impose on Afghanistan. They're looking for indicators on how they're going to treat women, um, how they're going to treat uh, ethnic and religious minorities. So they would say, you know, we're looking to staunch the humanitarian crisis. We're looking to get food and medicine in, um, which they are doing to some extent uh, via the UN, um, until we can be sure that the, that the Taliban is going to live up to its pledges of, you know, a more moderate, a more humane kind of government than what we saw in the 1990s. Yeah. What are you hearing about how the Taliban is treating women and minority groups in Afghanistan from other reporters in your org that are sort of on the ground or closer to it? Yeah, I mean, there have been um, certainly worrying accounts um, that have been documented, documented by human rights groups and by uh, Western and other reporters who are there in Afghanistan about the Taliban um, either arresting or, or disappearing some opponents, members of the former security forces, you know, they have said that they learned from their uh, the the past experience of the twenty year of the last twenty years as an insurgent group, and of course their previous time really in Afghanistan that they're going to be different, that they're going to support women's participation in the workforce, in public life, and to some extent in education. But you know, they say that this needs to occur under the framework of Sharia law, and as we all know, that is, of course is subject to different kinds of interpretations. So right now, the, uh, they are undertaking a process which they describe as you know, putting in place uh, what they view as acceptable structures for girls to return to school at the higher levels, for women to take part in the workforce, which would basically be some level of segregation of the sexes. Um, 
but you know, it, it, it's too early to say. And this is obviously is one of the big reasons that the United States and other Western donors have been reluctant to provide more money to the Taliban. And I think it's also important to mention that you know there is an element of politics here at play for the Biden administration. Um, it was heavily criticized um, by um, both parties uh, because of the way, the chaotic way that things unraveled at the end of the US withdrawal and of course with the Taliban takeover. And so, you know, I mean, I think we have to be realistic that there's a potent, there's a political element in the potential for them to be criticized even more if they do provide or if they're seen as providing money to the Taliban, which, you know, was our um, enemy for 20 years. So, you know, they're balancing that against uh, the, the humanitarian needs that everybody is seeing right now. I mean, does anyone in the Biden administration think that the sanction system works or is it just sort of a, a political uh, cover that they can't be seen as sort of retreating from this system of, of sanctioning governments, even if it hurts the people of the country who have nothing to do with it? Well, I mean, the when the sanction system was set up, you know, remember this was, um, you know, an accumulation of sanctions that occurred um, over 20 years when the Afghan, when the Taliban was not in government was not the Afghan government. And it was intended to really um, deprive them of resources and weaken them as an insurgent group. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, it's now in this, uh, the administration is now in this difficult situation of having to um, basically try to define, um, not only gauge the, um, the behavior of the Taliban government, but also define what constitutes the Taliban. Is it just the leadership? Is it, you know, the local health ministry that may have, you know, a Taliban political appointee um, uh, overseeing civil servants who worked there before? So it, it, the sanction regime was never intended to apply to the Afghan government in this way, and so, you know, they're in a process of catch up, um, and uh, it really um, is unfortunate because it is contributing to the suf suffering of the Afghan people. Yeah, are there? Historical parallels or, or situations with other countries where the U.S. has figured out ways of getting humanitarian support to the people of a country, e even though the government in charge is one that the U.S. opposes. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the U.S. Um, does sanction non-state actors um, frequently. Um, it's less common for um, uh, this to be applied to a, a government. But um, there one you know, recent example is um, or a government-like group. One recent example is Yemen, where um, you know the United States um, was for a long time considering and and, and um, almost did um, uh, label the Houthi organization as a foreign terrorist group, and you know that um, really did raise the specter of you know cutting off because they function as the government of you know more than half of Yemen. That raised this, the um, specter of you know depriving millions of people of, you know, services, the money that would lead to services, to commerce and all of that, the government has in that and other cases provided um, what they call licenses, um, which the tre treasury issues to allow aid groups to operate. They've done so in Afghanistan um, as well mm -hmm. in recent months, but it's never perfect. And it also has, it often has a deterrent effect um, because people and organizations and businesses 
are afraid of being ensnared in uh, financial sanctions. And so sometimes they decide not to do business um, with in a, in a certain country for that reason. You know, the food situation on the ground is particularly worrying. For people who want to keep their eye on that, even if it's not in American headlines, where should they be looking? Well, you know, the we have the UN sort of taking the lead on the ground um, as the vehicle for remaining Western support to Afghans at this moment. You know, there are some non-American aid groups that are there operating. Um, and, you know, I mean, the we're all watching the Taliban to see how their um, actions match or don't match their rhetoric. Um, there are, um, you know, a number of Afghans who um, have made it to the United States, and some of them are telling their stories. Um, and, you know, to the Taliban's credit, they have allowed international and some local media organizations to continue to operate. And so they're able to talk about conditions, not just in the capital Kabul, but in some of these more far-flung places. So, you know, it definitely is a different situation than some more restrictive information environments, um, but it also is a rapidly changing situation. Um, and, you know, the, the months ahead as Afghanistan heads into winter are going to be really delicate. Quick thing before we let you go. Has the Biden administration set sort of like a threshold or sort of like, OK, we've seen enough from the Taliban. They're respecting these things. Therefore, we're going to change our posture to them. Or are they sort of keeping things loose? They have not uh, set forth any sort of um, public parameters like that. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, you know, my, my suspicion is that they don't have, you know, a hard set of criteria uh, because, you know, there are so many different elements to this. And they want to retain their flexibility, you know, to, as I said before, balance the humanitarian crisis and the desire to help Afghans mm -hmm. with everything that would go along with recognizing and providing money through the Taliban. Thanks so much. We've been talking about the situation in Afghanistan and the politics of it here in the United States with Missy Ryan, national security reporter with, uh, security reporter with The Washington Post. Thanks so much, Missy. Thank you. Next up, we hear from a newly arrived Afghan journalist. Stay with us. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. At the very top of the show, you heard from Hwaga Ghani, an Afghan woman who got out of Afghanistan in the chaotic days when Kabul fell. She's now the first fellow in a new program organized by UC Berkeley's Human Rights Center, San Jose State's Human Rights Initiative, and the UC Berkeley Afghan Students Association. She now lives here, at least for now, in the Bay Area. Welcome to the show, Hwaga. Thank you so much. So we 
would like to go back kind of to the early months of 2021. The Taliban was advancing across the country. But did you imagine at the time when you were living in Kabul, you're working with Western news organizations, you're working with Amnesty International, did, did you imagine that the Taliban would in fact take the city and that the entire country would be in their hands? I did not even imagine it. I couldn't because we were living in a, I don't know, in a denial probably. Mm. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of it. I mean, it's interesting because from the outside, it seemed like the Taliban was advancing so quickly to Kabul inside the city. Were you like, man, they're going to be here in like a few days? Were you getting ready? Were you getting prepared? Or were you just kind of going on uh, with life? Well, I was going on with life. I was working so since the day they arrived. I was working. I did not have any idea until my sister called, t- texted me. She was like, sister, do you know that the Taliban have entered Kabul? And she was at office. And I was like, no, I have no idea. I went through all my messages, the group messages that we have, like all the journalists. I was checking everything. I did not see anything. And I was like, no, somebody probably has told you something wrong. I don't, I don't have anything here. Yeah. And she's like, no, I'm going home. And they are here. And then until my mom called me, she told me, she's like, we need to get home. They're here. Wow. So, yeah, it's just amazing to me because, I mean, you're a reporter. You're working with different news orgs and and we're pretty tapped in. And even then, I think it was August 15th is sort of the, the day when things uh-huh. began to go really chaotic. Um, can you t- walk us through that day? So, you, you know, you get the text message from your sister. And where are you then? Like, where do you actually get the, the text message? I'm, I'm working with Amnesty International and the center of, of Kabul. We were uh, in a guest house where um, the Amnesty fellows were, were uh, staying and we were working together. There. We, were doing it. we were doing interviews and everything. And we're waiting for this last interview. We're talking about it, sitting in a lawn. Um, and uh, all of a sudden we hear gunshots seven gunshots and I'm like what's going on and I'm asking my my colleagues I was like do you guys know anything they're like no we don't know anything what's what's going on everybody started rushing into a safe room um the guards uh, came and they were like you need to go to the safe room you need to go to the safe room this is the time when I get my sister's text that you know do you know that they're they're in Kabul I was like, no, 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 I don't know anything. And I went through the, the text and everything and I check, I don't see anything. And I'm wondering what's going on. <clears throat> so we, we all got into the safe room, which was underground uh, in the basement. So we all went in and I have no signal. So I can mm. talk to my parents or they text me or call me or anything. Mm. My mom has been calling me, but she can't get, she can't get to talk to me because mm. there are no, no phone, phone receptions, no nothing. All of a sudden, I get her call there, and I talk to her, and she's like, you need to get home. They're here. We're, we're just looking at the news. And I'm like, I don't see anything. How do we see it on the news then? So I didn't know what to do. So we, after like five or six minutes um, in the basement, we came out, and we got to know the gunshots were uh, outside the Cobble Bank. 
in the city mm-hmm. where people wanted to to take their money out of the yeah. bank and flee, you know, and the banks could not pay them that that amount of money. And the guards start shooting. Mm. And then that's how, you know, people got scared and people, everybody thought like, yeah, I think they're here. They didn't know what was going on and we didn't know what was going on. And that was the time that we got the news and I told my colleagues, I was like, I have to leave. And they're like, yeah, you should get home. And how did you actually get across the city? Um, It was, it was pretty hard. Uh, The instant I came out, um, um, I hired a taxi. I sit in a taxi and I see the whole street jammed. The traffic is jammed. No, no, no car is moving. People are getting out of the cars and walking. So I, <clears throat> I came out of the taxi. I paid the taxi driver and I came out. Mm. I started walking towards home. I walked for 20 minutes and I start running. Um, I, I see there is no women on the street. They're all men coming out of their offices, have their office bags in their hands and they're running on the street. Mm. There, is no, there, there are no cars. Nobody's picking up anyone. Everybody's trying to get home. Mm-hmm. And it's a chaos. So there is this one Corolla car stops in front of me and there is an old woman with her son and this guy is trying to take people to safe places so you know just helping people he's not getting paid like he's like i'm just gonna try to help you so he i sat in the car and like i went with him Hmm. through a distance and then he had to go home too and he was going to another direction i i got down in the car and i was like okay and then i started walking again um and then i started walking and walking there was another guy who stopped and was like, I can get you somewhere if you want to go. And this, this old lady was with me. We were walking together. So we, we got to another car and went another like small distance. And then he had to go to another direction. So I, I was like, stop here. I have to walk. And I start walking again. And I see all the men rushing into their houses. There are, there are no women on the street. And I'm like, I don't know how am I going to get home. Uh, and I'm, I'm about like an hour far from home if I walk. Um, so I stopped this, this another taxi who was, who was already stopped. He, he wanted to buy water for himself. And I was like, brother, can you, can you take me home? He's like, where are you going? I was like, this is my destination. Can you take me? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So just come in. And then he dropped me home and I thanked him and I paid him. And the instant I got home, my mom was just waiting for me. They must've been worried sick. It was, it was, she was crying when, when I got home and my sister had already, uh, she was already home and I was the only one left out. <laughs> so at that point you really we're thinking, I probably need to get out of here because the work that I've done with international organizations probably makes me a target, right? I mean, was that something you knew right away? Or was that something that like people that you'd worked with in Western media were like, no, really, you should get out of here? Yeah, it was, it was kind of like, 
all of my my friends uh, that I worked with, they all urged like everybody was texting me, everybody was calling me, like Haga, you need to get out, Haga, you need to get out, and I didn't know how. And then I sat on my computer, started working on what I can do, and started speaking to everyone, whomever wanted to help me. They all like. They were like, yeah, I'm going to take you here. I'm going to take you there. I'm going to take you here. I can take you out here. So I started doing all the, like, fill the forms and spoke to everyone. My family here in the U.S., they were like, all my cousins, they were texting me, what, what, can, what can we do? Tell us what, what do you need? And we, we will help. You need to come out. And um, yeah, for four days, I was just on my computer, on my phone did nothing else. I, I didn't eat. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't sleep. And this is what I was doing. And, and I, I couldn't do it only for myself. And I had to do it for my family. I couldn't leave them behind. Um, so I, so, I, all of my friends tried to help me and, and made me do this. Yeah. What was your next stop? You ended up at kind of a way station, right? The Serena hotel. Yeah. So after four days staying at home, one of my good friends from Vice News uh, called me. He, he was like, Haga, uh, are you still home? I was like, yes. He's like, you can't get out, right? I was like, no, I can't. So he's like, okay, just give me uh, some time. Uh, I'll give you a call back. I, was like, I said, okay. And in a few hours, um, one of his colleagues who was helping people come out and stay at Serena, he called me. He's like, Hug, are you ready? I said, yes, I'm ready because I already like got everything packed, small bags. I told my mom and dad that, you know, this is what we need to have and emergency stuff, just emergency things that you need. Just gather them. And I, when I got a call, I was ready. And he's like, okay, then you need to get to Serena Hotel at this time. And there's going to be um, someone waiting for you at the gate of Serena so you can get in. Um, and uh, one of my good friends who has a security company, I called him. I was like, I need a driver uh, in a car so they can take me to, um, to, to Serena Hotel. And um, I, I, yeah, we just packed and left. Uh, it was around uh, 7, 7.30 p.m. We got out of the house and we got to Serena Hotel and stayed there for four days uh, until we found us an escort, another friend from the New Yorker uh, and New York Times helped us uh, get an escort to the airport after four days. And after four days, um, uh, around 6 p.m., we, we went out. We got together with other families who were evacuating uh, at this meeting point at seven and waited for a few few hours until they, they brought all the vans which would take all of these 70 people to the airport with the escort. We left like around 8, 8.30 p.m. and we got to the airport uh, around 12 a.m because it was a lot of traffic, so many people on the street, so many cars on the street. There were four checkpoints of, of Taliban that people had to go through. 
people were rushing into the airport gates and Taliban were shooting on the streets. Um, Was that the scariest moment for you, you think? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You cannot. I I, I can never imagine going through that again. Um, Because I I could see all the Taliban, like with their guns on the street, um, shooting. And one of, because we couldn't go through the gates, a lot of people were rushing in with us. So they didn't let us get in. They told us to go back. And we had to come back to the end of the street, the road again. And we were going slowly, slowly going back to the gates. And that was the time <clears throat> when one of the Taliban uh, soldiers came to the driver and I'm sitting right behind the driver's seat and I could hear him talking to the driver and he was like you need to you can't come close to the gates if you do um, we're going to shoot whomever's in, in the van with you mm. and that was the scariest moment ever for me <laughs> yeah so you know, you, you did eventually get, get through the gates. You get put on a plane yeah. to Qatar. You eventually mm-hmm. get to this American military base, Fort McCoy, in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. where you're sort of stuck yeah. for a month. Mm-hmm. That experience, you know, you you mentioned in an NPR piece that you were called a guest during that time. and. Yeah we were talking about it with the producers. We didn't know if that felt like a good thing or a bad thing versus a refugee, right? Like, did it feel good to be called a guest or were, did that feel like it didn't actually have um, the legal status of refugee? No, actually, I felt good. I have been in a refugee before and it did not feel good when people used to call me a refugee and... But when we got to Fort McCoy and they had like these labels for all the like on the <clears throat> on the defects that, you know, uh, a defect for guests. And then uh, they had guests, uh, social services, and they would call us, oh, our guests, we're going to do this for our guests. We're going to do this for our guests. It was a, it was a really, it, it felt really good. It didn't feel bad. I felt like I am welcomed. Mm-hmm. You know, they're calling me their guest. Yeah. And in so, Afghan culture, being a guest is, is, is a very honorable thing. So when did you actually arrive here in the Bay Area to sort of resettle you know, near your extended family, which you have here? So on the 7th of October, um, we got done with our 21 days of isolation um, because we had the vaccines and the MMR and we had to be isolated for 21 days and stay there and wait for those 21 days to be over. And the rest of the process was done. We were just waiting for the 21 days. And on the 8th, uh, we flew from Wisconsin uh, to Denver and from Denver to San Francisco. What was your first impression on seeing the place? Um, I don't know how to explain this because I did not know. I would, I did not know where I was and what I was supposed to do. Uh, but it was 
I was so happy to see my family and my brother. I saw my brother after four, four years that, you know, um, I've been apart from him for four years and I saw him after four years and I cannot explain that, that feeling, that emotion that I had at that moment. And my, my cousins that I had not seen them my whole life, they were born, they were raised here and they're all going to colleges, to universities. And I saw them for the first time. And your mom, too, has had people from her family who've been here for really decades that she was seeing for the first time as well. Yes. My mom was so happy and so emotional. She was crying because she was being reunioned with her family after 40 years. She was really happy. Do you feel disoriented you know having gone through all of that you've now been here for a, a couple of months does it feel like you're starting to settle in uh yes yes I'm feeling like it and the people who have helped me uh get settled here and I cannot thank them enough a lot of people helped me um rent this house Muslim community uh Afghan community you know, everybody that I knew and I did not know helped me get settled here. They they got me the house, they got me the furniture, they got me everything. And I'm, I'm, I, I can't thank them enough. Yeah. We're talking about the situation in Afghanistan and how it has impacted the Bay Area and re- people who are resettling here. We've been talking with Waga Ghani, a journalist who fled Afghanistan when the Taliban arrived in Kabul and who now lives in the Bay Area. In the next section, we're going to expand this conversation to talk about both resettlement and its complexities here in the Bay, as well as the conditions back in Afghanistan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about situation with Afghan people, both in Afghanistan as well as people who've resettled here in the Bay. We've been joined by Hwaga Ghani, a journalist who fled Afghanistan when the Taliban arrived in Kabul, now living here in Alameda County. And we'd like to introduce Joseph Azam, a board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization working on issues 
impacting the Afghan American community. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And of course, we'd also like to hear uh, from you about Huaga's powerful story uh, about the situation in Afghanistan. Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. Maybe you're an Afghan refugee yourself or you're assisting Afghans who've resettled in the Bay. We'd love to hear that experience. The number is 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook uh, and, of course, Instagram. Just look up KQED Forum and the email is forum at kqed.org. Joseph, I want to talk a little bit about resettlement here in the Bay Area and Sacramento. What has your organization seen? I mean, we do have such a large uh, population of Afghan Americans here uh, and and Afghans who've who've come. Um, But we also know that it's very expensive to live here and it's kind of the two forces that are leading to some difficult resettlement situations. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think it's fascinating. I mean, I'll, not surprisingly, I'll say that California uh, turns out to be the number one preferred destination of the folks who are arriving. Um, we have that empirical data from the bases. Um, and I think we're expecting anywhere from five to 12,000. Um, and that's a healthy estimate of people coming in across across the state, right? Particularly Sacramento and the Bay Area, um, we'll get a, you know, a big chunk of that. Um, and what we're seeing is that um, by and large, people are, you know, sort of following the, the paths of the relatives who came here in the first several weeks, right? So obviously they're attracted to areas where there are vibrant Afghan communities like Sacramento, like the Bay Area. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is communities within those cities um, of Afghans are really pulling together to support those folks, right? So um, in addition to the great work the resettlement agencies are doing, um, there's a whole crop of Afghan-led um, organizations that are popping up working on everything from, you know, securing housing, to employment and enablement, um, getting people registered for school, um, you know, furn- furnishing their homes and, and the like, and, and delivering gr- groceries, right? So to the micro level. Mm-hmm. So a, a bit of a grassroots effort has popped up in the area. Um, and that that's a testament to the existing community that's been here for, you know, going on 40 years now. Yeah. You know, obviously a lot of different kinds of people are leaving Afghanistan. Some, you know, like Quagga, who've you know, spent their lives uh, both, you know, around the region, like, have you know, had left Afghanistan and, and come back and who'd work uh, with Western uh, folks, as well as people who, you know, maybe ha- had spent time more in, in rural places. Are you seeing, you know, culture shock among some of the folks who've come over or are pe- most of the people who've come over thus far, um, you know, kind of kind of able to make their way in, in the U.S.? Yeah, I'd say, Alexis, it's too early to tell, right? What we're definitely seeing is, is three things. One, this wave of Afghans is very different than the others, right? So folks who've been there the last 20 years in particular have had a very specific experience, both of being Afghan, but also an experience of, of um, interaction with the US, right? So there's a lot of sophistication we're seeing. They're, they're like a lot more adept, I think, at navigating American culture, frankly, than, than say I, I was, right? When I came here as a refugee 40 years ago. Um, the second thing we're seeing is um, there's definitely a bit, a bit of culture shock because people are being brought out of a war zone, right, effectively, mm-hmm. um, into places like Wisconsin, right, or California, or Atlanta, or Chicago, or the New York metro area, right? So, it, and by the way, in the middle of winter, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. and going through these bases. So there's all kinds of culture shock that, that's happening. And then three, I, I think we're seeing people just feeling like really insecure, right, uh, and, and what's mm-hmm. going to happen next. 
I think there've been improvements in the level of information that's shared with them, but by and large, people seem really confused about what their short, medium, and long-term prospects are here, right? Even down to like where they're going to live, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of, I'd say, anxiety uh, and a lot of insecurity um, in, in the folks that we're working with. Yeah. Huaga, you know, you've been wired right into some of the Bay Area's institutions, the academic ones, and you obviously know um, journalists and, and reporters. Are you are you finding that other uh, Afghans who come with you, maybe even your own family, um, are having a very different experience of trying to understand sort of where they've really landed? Yes. Um, since the day we, we got to Wisconsin, I was living in the camp with the people. It was a cultural shock for a lot of them. A lot of them. They didn't know how to how to uh, get settled. They were wondering what they're going to be doing Mm -hmm. and how are they going to go on with the life here? Mm. They didn't understand anything. What do you say to folks, you know, (laughs) either of you really can answer this one, but maybe let's uh, start with you, Waga. What do you say to someone who's sort of like, well, I I don't speak the language. I don't know what I'm going to do for work. What, What can you even tell people? I, I seriously didn't know what to say because uh, when I was in the camp, I did not know how am I going to do things. Although I knew the language, although I knew a little bit about the culture, about how things work here, I understood most of the things. I was lost and I didn't know what to tell them. How do they have to go on with things? Because... I was still in the camp and I didn't know what am I going to do? How are things that are going to be with, for me? Cause it, it's a new, new place. And I am in a, in a very different country than where I used to live. Mm-hmm. And people are different. The system is different. I didn't, I did not understand how, how to answer them. Yeah. yeah. I would add to that. One thing that's been effective Alexis is for us to sort of, draw a distinction between the American government and the American people. Um, For very fair reasons, many of the Afghans who are coming here have a deep distrust of the American government, right? And we can talk about that another time. But I think what you're seeing from the American people, whether it's veterans groups, faith groups, Afghan Americans, uh, communities like the Vietnamese American community, right? There's an unprecedented sort of outpouring of support and welcome. And so the the thing that I've said to people is um, trust us right? Trust the people who are now working with you uh, and who are going to sort of stick by you as you go through this process Mm -hmm. and understand that just like the government in Afghanistan and many other governments, um, there are differences between, you know, government policy, government action, and and what people are able to do. And and that's kind of resonated with some folks, I think. You know, Joseph, I wanted to get your perspective on the you know, really emerging humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan as well. I know that's one of the other prongs of sort of your organization. What's your perspective on what's happening there? Sure. I mean, I, I'll say, first of all, Huaga's perspective is much more important because she's lived it. And I want to acknowledge that, right? But but I think that the situation is, is really dire, right? And it's dire for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, first and foremost, you know, there are 25 million people roughly, right, at risk of starvation, right? The World Health Organization warned that around 3.2 million children were likely to suffer from acute malnutrition by the end of this year right? The, the healthcare system has collapsed. The, 
collapsed, the economic system has collapsed. And there are, uh, I think there's since June, there's been like an 80% jump in the number of internally displaced people within Afghanistan, right? So it, to say that it's a catastrophe, I think is an understatement. Mm. And so I think what's really important is like, how do we respond, right? Because in every facet of society now, there is deep, palpable and very visible human suffering within Afghanistan, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, that's to say nothing, Alexis, right? Of the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic and it, in the start of a brutal winter, right? Which would have been really hard anyway. So, so it's a really bleak situation, you know, and I think it's in many ways unique right now in the world. Quagga, you've spoken to colleagues who remain in Afghanistan and are struggling to feed their families. Can you share more about that? Um, yeah, because... Um... Um, I, I do speak back and forth with a lot of uh, women uh, who I used to work with, uh, a lot of activists who are still there. Um, um, and there is this one woman who used to work and she was the breadwinner uh, of the house and she has children. Um, she doesn't have a husband. Uh, she's a widow. Um, so I was talking to her the other night and she was telling me that life, life is, is getting harder day by day. Um, whatever I had, I sold it because I wanted to feed my children. I can't go, I can't work anymore. Um, I can't earn anything anymore for my children. I am wondering how am I supposed to feed them tonight? I don't know anything and I don't have anything to sell anymore. I, I don't know how to feed them. And that's, she was crying and she was like, I don't know. I don't know how am I supposed to feed my children. And I was talking to this other um, uh, person who used to work for the government and now he's hiding uh, somewhere. Um, so I was speaking to him and he was like, the situation is so bad. I, I'm not working anymore. I used to work with the government and I can't work in this government anymore because I'm scared because um, assassinations are, are happening yeah. nowadays and I'm scared. And I don't know how to feed my children anymore. Um, I don't have anything. Yeah. Thank you, Waga, for, for sharing that. I want to bring in some of our callers. Abdullah in Alameda, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. What's your story? So I want to tell you a little bit about my story, how I brought my family to the U.S. So I went to Afghanistan on 25th of August after when the uh, the country was 100% in hands of Taliban. Oh, wow. So my family really tried to go uh, to the U.S. embassy and uh, try to uh, leave Afghanistan after this everything, but they were failed. They attempted like more than 20 times, but they were failed because it was oh. a very huge crowd to make it to the U.S. embassy or to the Kabul airport. And then they called me like they, they lost the hope. And I knew that because I'm a U.S. citizen, I would never be able to go back to Afghanistan and visit them again in my life in the Taliban time. So... I decided to go to Afghanistan, even though it was very impossible to go to Afghanistan and bring my family. And how I did was, I, because I'm a U.S. citizen, so I applied for Pakistan visa, and I got my visa in 24 hours. I went to Pakistan, and then... You just got it, on a plane and flew to Pakistan? Yes, yes, on the 25th of August. Uh -huh. 
And then what happened was in, in, in the border, because Pakistan has a very long border line with Afghanistan, and the border Pakistani police or militias, they arrested me because they knew that because uh, their system is very bad in Pakistan. If they know that you're American or you have money, the police will give you a very hard time. So they arrested me and they were asking me for like ten to $20,000. Oh and I gosh. told them like, hey, I, I, I'm going to save my family. Like, I don't have all this money. I just have only like a couple hundred dollars in my pocket because I didn't know that I would need a lot of money because my plan was to just go to Afghanistan and bring my family and just get out of there. Yeah. And then and then I had to like bake them and I gave them my iPhone. I had my iPhone with me. I gave them my iPhone to the police so they can just, you know, take that and let me go. And they did that. And I had like a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred uh, dollars. I gave them that too. And they let me cross the border. And I went to Jalalabad. I, like my family was waiting for me in, in the bus station. I picked them up. I went to Kabul and I saw the crowd. It was a very huge crowd. And I thought that I would be able to make it to the, to the gate or through the gate to go inside, but it was impossible to go. And and then I spoke to the U.S. Uh, embassy consular, like, hey, I'm here, I'm a U.S. citizen, this is my family. And they said, like, we are very sorry, we cannot let you in because it's a lot of security threats. You need to move out of there. You need to go very far from the embassy and also from surrounding the airport. So, and then I lost hope. I was there, like, for another week and there was no phone call number there was nothing to contact with them like i'm a u.s citizen i am a family to explain them i need to get out and then i went to the taliban there was a check post like hey i have my family and they're like are you a u.s citizen i say yes i'm a u.s citizen they were like okay um what, what we're going to do is we will let you in but you have to tell tell us all like the secrets about this and that i was like no there's no secret i'm just here <laughs> you're like dude i live family. in alameda <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah. Yes, and but they didn't let me in, and they tried to sh- like shot at me, like if you don't move, we're gonna kill you and your family. And then I spoke to one of my U.S. Lieutenant Colonel in the Army back in the day. I used to work with him in 2012 and 13, and then he find a way, and then he contacts some U.S. Um, uh, senators and the California, uh, what do you call it, the um, delegation uh, the, from here, Congress, yes, yes, congressional then, representative. Yes, yes, exactly. And then they contact me and they gave me some more information and then they helped me to go to Mazar and I, I was in Mazar for another 27 days. Oh my gosh. To wait there because the Taliban shut down the airport. They, they paused all the flights. Abdullah, so, so I need I, to, I, I I need to ask you, did you, did you, were you able to get your family out? Yes, I, I got almost all my family just except for my two married sisters. But yes, you got out a lot there. of people. And how do you feel about it? I, I feel very strong about it. I feel very accomplished now. At least I brought all my single siblings, all those little kids, my brothers and sisters. So I feel very happy for them, even though I'm struggling right now to find a house for them, to to help them because it's only me here and I have 10 people to support. So I know that, 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 that there are a lot of agencies helping, but I don't know any of them. So I'm struggling right now to how how to support them. I know I made a very big achievement in my life to bring and save my family, but still it's not easy. It's not only me. There are a lot, thousands of people who are going through the same thing. Hey, Abdullah, stay, stay on the line even after the show ends, and we'll try and, we'll try and hook you up with somebody. We need to ask Joseph Azam, though, like what, what should we be doing to help Abdullah right now? Well, well, one, on the resettlement front, I would say um, – 
you know, um, by the way, I'm happy to connect with them through the foundation. Yeah, but that would be great. We, we really need to, you know, sort of have the resettlement agencies and the local organizations, particularly the Afghan ones, connect uh, and ferret out these stories uh, and, and deliver services, right? And, and part of that, Alexis, is funding. Right, so I think that's a big thing that, that we need to talk about on the local level, uh, and then folks like him who are trying to get their families out. I mean, I think what's harrowing to me about that is that people shouldn't be doing this. This is the obligation of governments, particularly our government, you know, to help U.S. citizens and families of U.S. citizens get out. And so I'd say it's really important for us to have that conversation with our elected officials, right, and hold them accountable, right, to our values, to things they've said they would do. Um, you know, in response to the crisis in Afghanistan. And I know that sounds very broad, Alexis, but truly that pressure is one of the most important things that we can do as Americans. And certainly I'd say even as Californians, right, um, to hold our, our elected officials accountable. Yeah. Um, Joseph, if you said we need to talk about funding, what organizations, it is this big season of giving, people are given, you know, major gifts. What are the, the places here in the Bay Area where that could, the money could eventually get to Abdullah. Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And this is like a really fraught topic. So I want to be careful, right? Because there's a lot of good work being done. What I would say is that there's three levels you go to. Certainly you can go to like the leading resolvement agencies, right? And see what they, what they are doing. But there are organizations actually within the Bay Area. I can think of two, right? Um, one is called the Afghan Coalition, which has been around a very long time, mm-hmm. right? In Fremont, they're doing a ton of great work around this uh, and, and they're getting involved in resettlement and could use support. Two, there's an organization called Five Pillars, which I think might have responded on the social post for this, right? Again, doing phenomenal work. And going through the Afghan American Foundation, we can help you find those kinds of organizations around the country. And so I would say reach out, let us know you want to help, and we'll find ways for you to help. Thank you. We've been talking about the situation in Afghanistan and how it's impacted so many Afghan people with Joseph Azam, board chair of the Afghan American Foundation, and Hwaga Ghani, a journalist who fled Afghanistan when the Taliban arrived. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Forum is produced by Tina Lauerberg. Susan Britton, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Grace Wan. Caroline Smith is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer for the 9 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, Brendan Willard, and Chris Hoff. Our interns are Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Ng. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.